Good morning. Hey, that worked. <laughs> it's always kind of funny seeing like everyone's in conversation, and then I say something, whoop, heads turn all at once. <laughs> all right, well, welcome to Connection Fellowship this morning, August 20th. Believe it or not, it's already August. We've already started school up. 2023 only just began, but it's almost September. So, <laughs> yeah, crazy. But hey, welcome. Glad to have you, all of you who have been able to come today. It's good to see you. We actually only have one thing to note during the announcement slot. This is going to be super long today. Uh, pods. Pods have started back up, and we want to make sure everyone was aware. Currently, the times, meeting day, meeting time for all the pods is the same for every pod, with the exception of Kristen's pod. It has moved from Wednesday night to Monday night. Yes. Good, I remembered correctly what my own wife is doing. <laughs> so Kristen's pod has changed to Monday night. The other pods are all at the same times currently. What times are those, Eric? I, I don't know. <laughs> it's not true. Like Brett's pod is Friday morning. I think Anna is Friday morning as well. Nope, totally wrong. It's on Thursday. Don't ask me. One thing I'm hoping to do actually is to get a list of those times at the back, uh, maybe in the coming week or two, so that it's easy reference for anyone who is not currently in a pod and wants to reference that. So. Other than that, if you want to know, please ask me or David. I promise I can find it out, even though I don't know it right now. So that is the announcement. With that, let's all stand, and we will read Scripture together. Today we are in Psalm 74 as we continue our march through the Psalms. It's a psalm of Asaph that cries out to God for help uh, against the enemy. So let's read through this together. O oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. All its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we were utterly subdue them. They burned all of the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. There is none among us who knows how long. How long, O Lord, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. And then the turn in this psalm. Yet, God my king is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs, and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant. For the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. 
Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. God, we pray that in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our lives, as we know there are times that we feel like this will be forever. Whether that is big picture society issues, whether that's small picture daily life issues, health or finances, relational struggles, these things can feel like forever. These things can feel like people are just scoffing at us, at your people, at you. And so we cry out how long, but God help us at that same time, just as the psalmist, to remember you are the one who is from of old. You are the eternal God. You are the only ruler, the only king over all things. You manage creation. You manage our lives as well. That we can call out to you, we can trust you, we can trust your timing pray that you would help us to see that and to worship you and to trust you no matter how long the how long is. That we would know that in your time you're working out your plan even when it's not in accordance with our time. And that we would entrust our times to your times. Thank you for the salvation you have brought through Jesus. Thank you that though we look at a, at a world that sits under the curse and under sin, we look forward to a day when all will be made new. Thank you that we have the hope that you will make us new and we will be free from the struggle against sin. Help us as we worship this morning to, to love and adore you for your goodness, for your, for your nature and character as the only amazing God, as the only ruler of all the earth, that we would proclaim your goodness to the next generation and the next and the next and the next you have done it, and you will do it. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Morning, family. How's everybody doing today? So glad to see you all in the house of the Lord. Um, this week, uh, we're going to be continuing our new sermon series in the book of Zechariah, or Zechariah. I'm still not sure what I'm supposed to call it. But um, the subtitle is that we're... Um, we're building God's kingdom. We're rebuilding our hearts. And um, we kind of took that as the theme for the song choices this week. And I want to just, just think through what it means to be a builder. we have any builders in our church? Yeah, I think we all do. We are, are building something. I know we've got some talented builders like uh, Mark who's uh, doing his woodworking. He's, he's built some awesome furniture for us. And we've got people that have built houses recently. Um, but we're all building a kingdom, Right. We're either building our kingdom or we're building God's kingdom. And, and that's really the, the seminal point that we have to come to is whose kingdom are we going to build? Now, where is the kingdom of God? We know that that's wherever God is ruling and reigning, right? We have a tendency to try to build our own kingdom by making our, our will be done in our lives. And um, we come to the point like the Israelites did where... We just read in this psalm, in Psalm 74, this, this tragedy of the enemies of God coming in and destroying the house of the Lord, defiling the temple. But really, before they came in and defiled it, the Israelites had defiled it, right? They had made it 
their worship uh, about themselves. They had really uh, stopped worshiping God and building his kingdom and building their own. And um, before we come to know Christ, that's all we know how to do is to build our own kingdom. And there has to be this point at which our kingdom has to be torn down. We have to be um, torn down to the ground. We have to be stripped bare, and a new foundation has to be laid. It has to be laid on the cornerstone of Christ and the gospel and the good news. And then God starts to build back up on top of all of that, something that is more important, more powerful, more meaningful than anything we could have designed for our lives. And um, this first song is called Build Your Kingdom Here, and it's, it's a good starting point. We're asking God to set his church on fire, not like we just read in the psalm where the enemies of God set the church on fire. We want him to set it on fire with his spirit. We want it to be on fire for the Lord and uh, passionate. So I want you to sing with some passion this morning. And let's, um, let's commit to making God's kingdom um, our, our only priority in our lives today, okay? Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope, like wildfire in our very souls. Holy Spirit, come invade us now. For we are your church, and we need your power in us. We seek your kingdom first, we hunger and we thirst, refuse to waste our lives, for you're our joy and prize. To see the captain's hearts release, the hurt, the sick, the poor at peace, we church and we pray revive this earth amen church build your kingdom build your kingdom here let the darkness fear show your mighty hand heal our streets amen let your church on fire witness name church and we are the hope on earth 
let the darkness fear show your mighty hands heal our streets and lands set your church on fire when this nation dies change the atmosphere build your kingdom here we pray Amen. So for his kingdom to be built here, we first have to tear down our own. And that is a uh, sometimes difficult, sometimes painful process. It starts with repentance. And you guys know what repentance means, right? That's, that's doing a 180 degree turn and about face. We're heading down one path. We're building our own kingdom. We're trying to do things our way. And then we realize that that way leads to destruction. And we turn around 180 degrees and we start heading towards Jesus, towards his cross, where we lay down all of our sins and all of our, our selfishness. And he starts to rebuild us on something uh, far more meaningful. We're going to be talking a lot about repentance today. And I just wanted to um, pull up a good definition that I saw once. This is from the, uh, the Westminster Catechism. It says, what is repentance unto life? And the answer is that repentance unto life is a saving grace. Remember, when you hear the word grace, you think gift, right? It's a gift that we don't deserve. It's something that God gives us. Repentance doesn't start in our own heart. It's not like we one day decide, you know what, I think I'm going to be a better person. It starts with God. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, that's us, out of a true sense of his sin, really understanding how despicable and unworthy we are. And an apprehension, that's an understanding of the mercy of God, really coming to know that God loves us even in our sin, loves us enough to send his own son to pay a price that we can't imagine. He loves us enough to to die for us. With grief and hatred of his sin, not justifying it, not trying to minimize it, but with disgust in our own sin. We turn from that towards God. With a full purpose, that means totally committed, and an endeavor after, that means for the rest of our lives, we're we're submitting and trying with all of our heart, with the Spirit's help inside of us, to follow after Him in obedience. This comes from 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. It says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So the beautiful thing about repentance and about the grief that we have towards our sin is that we can have faith to know that God has forgiven us for it. We deserve punishment. We deserve to be abandoned by him. But we don't face that. We face Mercy more abundant than we can possibly imagine. He takes all of our sin and he casts it as far as the east is from the west. And he doesn't hold us against this anymore. So we can repent knowing that we're not going to face a 
a vengeful God that's going to wag his finger in our face and make us crawl in the dirt. He opens his arms to us and, and embraces us. This song is called His Mercy is More. And uh, his mercy is our hope in repentance. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, and new every morn. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. What love could remember No wrongs we have done Omniscient all knowing He counts not their sums Thrown into a sea Without bottom or shore Our sins they are many His mercy is more Sing that out Praise the Lord is more stronger than darkness new every more our sins they are many his mercy is more one patience would wait as we constantly roam what father so tender is calling us home he welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. That's us. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. More than anything. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness. Every morn, our sins they are many, His mercy is more. One riches of kindness He lavished on us, His blood was the payment, His life was the cause. We stood neath the death we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Praise God for His mercy. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. I 
my sins they are many his mercy is more our sins they are many his mercy is more our sins they are many his mercy is more well good morning again you can all uh, be seated We would uh, normally do the congregational prayer time right now, but we were talking recently in kind of a elder meeting, elder discussion, impromptu elder meeting. I don't know what you want to call it. <laughs> uh, but just wanting to, to look at some texts together and, um, I don't know, encouraging exhortation, thoughts, etc., cetera, uh, as we all look at life together. But... Um, I want to start just reading some texts of Scripture, uh, starting with Ephesians uh, chapter 2. Not the whole chapter, but uh, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When Jesus was about to depart earth, he turned to his disciples at the end of Matthew chapter 27, Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As he called people to discipleship, it was not just a call to to peace and comfort. Jesus in Luke 9, verse 23, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. A page later in my Bible, a few verses later, verse 57 of Luke chapter 9, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have dens, but the son of the man has nowhere to lay his head. And to another he said, follow me. 
But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Finally, in Luke 14, verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him. Sounds like a good thing, lots of people following you. But Jesus was really insistent on calling people out from just following a celebrity. He turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able, with 10,000, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In, in 1 Peter, we are encouraged in chapter or 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's, it's amazing, this grace that we've been given, as, as Justin was just talking a minute ago. That we are rescued, and his mercy is more than our sin, and he has given us eternal hope. And Ephesians 1, it was cool even on Wednesday, looking at it with the youth, and it was so striking in the way that Paul just goes over the top emotionally. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14 in Greek is all one big run-on sentence, which is exactly what we do when we're really excited about something. Really excited about God's grace. And yet Jesus calls us not just, hey, I've saved you. Go live comfortably until I take you to heaven. He's like, I've saved you. Come follow me. Be my disciple. Be like me. Carry this on like I do. Live as pilgrims. Take up your cross. And especially, like it's been true for years, but especially since covid and since heading home from work and heading home from other things and heading home from church and all this, there's been a huge trend of not taking up my cross to follow him, but of giving him the cross back and doing my own thing and letting him follow me. And so we just want to really encourage people as we're looking at what does it actually mean to be connection fellowship together. We're called to be here, for one. <laughs> and sometimes we have a, a body, some of us are very consistent, some of us are incredibly inconsistent, some of us I, I've never met yet in two years here who are considering themselves part of us on the list. And I, I want to, I want, we want to, to pray, to urge that we would be here together for one another. God has put us as a community to live a hard life because living with sin and the curse is not easy. Living for Jesus and the call of discipleship to lay down your life is not easy. So one, that we would be here, but two, that we would be here for the right reasons. Because we're not just here to say, okay, I did my Jesus thing for the week. I can move on now. Like, this is an opportunity to love together, to worship together, to build one another up, and to serve one another. Amen. That we can all be here, that we can come on a Sunday, that we can give our energies, that we can prioritize our lives, not toward my things, 
not toward my life. Jesus says, lay down your life and you will save it. Take up your life and you'll lose it. If, I, if my life is prioritized toward all the things of me, I will lose my life. And so that God would help us to have priorities in our lives that empower us toward ministry. That we wouldn't find ourselves saying, well, I can't do this because I'm too busy. That, that that statement would be a scary statement for ourselves. Every time that we say, we go, wait a second, I need to maybe adjust my life so I don't have to say I'm too busy to be a part of loving and serving the people of God um, on, a, on a weekly basis or monthly or whatever. Um, that our priorities toward participation and care would just be massive because Jesus loves us, because he has redeemed us, because there's nothing greater, like as Ephesians is talking about. So it's just, it's a very real call. It's a very sobering call, especially in a nation that wants everything else, that wants to go home and sit around and do nothing, that wants to, I mean, the whole, the whole point of the American dream is work, 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 save, 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 retire and do nothing and tell everyone you're busy anyway. That's, there's the pattern that, that the United States wants us to think through. And, and we don't, in, throughout the scripture, you won't find anywhere, not even once in the Bible, where it says, make sure to save up for your retirement. That doesn't mean there's a text in scripture that says retirement is evil. But we need to make sure that we're thinking with biblical priorities on how we engage our lives and how we use our lives when we have them in our youth and our old age and our middle ages all throughout that we can plug in together and really be on fire for Jesus together. Because if we're only here to do a Sunday show and sing some songs and go home happy, we're missing it, and Satan's deceived us. And I was just thinking of this earlier as we are looking at Psalms even, like how long, O oh Lord, will the enemy deceive? And I think we can say that in a very real way about the cultural calls toward comfort. How long will the enemy deceive us toward comfort instead of toward Jesus? How long until we have a church that is just always passionately on fire throughout the United States. Not just connection, but all over. Because this is not just us. It's something that's infected the entire culture. I've personally seen it across the country in multiple places. (laughs) So as we think through that, and as, as we reflected on last Sunday night, we got together for a family meeting, which ended up being almost literally a family meeting. Uh, because it was almost none of us were here, unfortunately, for I'm sure a variety of reasons. But we're, we're trying to figure out, okay, what does it look like for us to really be together on these things, to really come together and try to plan out ministry together um, and to really commit to that. And maybe it looks like we need to find different times, better times for family meetings. Maybe it looks like we have to prioritize life differently to attend them. I don't know which it is, but I want to figure that out together that we can all be plugging through this, laying down our lives for Jesus, counting the cost, setting, or picking up our cross and following him and loving the world around us uh, in very tangible ways. So two things we wanted to re-announce from the family meeting so that it got a little more <laughs> wide berth and people knew about it. Point one, there are several bylaw tweaks, I'll say rephrasings uh, that we are proposing. They're on the back table on a sheet of paper that will be officially voted on September 17th or whatever it is, like a month. Um, basically, all of them are just rewording stuff that we're already doing. So it was looking at, I mean, one of the things is literally changing our address because the bylaw was inaccurate for our address. <laughs> so like, some stuff's really simple like that. A lot of it's just like, okay, how are we actually operating? And we've been operating for more than a decade. 
Um, but these bylaws are a little confusing the way they're phrased. So there's various adjustments. If you want to check out the, I think there are probably at least 10 printed and I can print more. Uh, if you don't already have a copy, uh, there are also like adjusting the word conference to meeting when it talks about a church conference that's called because it just seemed in 2023, like talking about a conference, we're like thinking of like traveling somewhere or a weekend conference and all is actually meant as a meeting. So really it's generally pretty small things like that, but please take a look at it. If you have questions, let us know. Uh, the second thing is children's ministry. And I want us to think about this from a very much bigger picture because it's very easy in conservative Christian America to bemoan society, to bemoan the way that society wants to wreck our children's lives, to bemoan the way that the next generation is going to have it so much worse because of whichever political thing you want to mention. Take your pick. There's several. And it apparently is very much harder for us to turn from complaining about the issue to participating with the next generation right here or, or down the street or wherever. There is an opportunity right here with our kids to do something very tangible and real about the problems for the next generation. We can care for the children God entrusts to, and that's whether, whether it's the children that are sitting right in this room, some of them, or some that are currently sitting over there, or whether it's the children of visitors who will come. You want to fight against liberal agendas? You can do it right back there. <laughs> you want to fight against the downfall of society and the, the tearing apart of marriage and all of this? You can do it right back there. Like, you can take up your sword against the enemy in children's ministry. You can care for these children. You can love them. You can show them the kind of love and care that they deserve to get from Jesus through you in that class. You can give them the gospel. You can give them instruction. And yeah, not everyone's awesome at it. <laughs> I personally am far better dealing with adults in college and even uh, teenage than I am with four-year-olds. But I can do it if I need to. And there's a need. So especially three categories. One, some of us haven't served in children's ministry ever. Please consider serving. We have needs to serve the children and to love them well. Some of us have served in the past, have taken a break, and maybe it's an opportunity to look at it again. Hey, can I plug back in now? I've taken a break. I've had a little bit of a, a sabbatical, and now I can jump back in there full force. Some of us are currently serving, and we're like, I could do it more. I'll just talk to Anna or Jen and say, hey, let me serve more. <laughs> I'm sure they'd be happy to throw you on the calendar more often uh, if you are willing and able. But really think about this so much more than just the logistics of having the kids watch while we're in here. There's an opportunity to love them well and love those who are in here well who otherwise would have their kids on their lap or that sort of thing. But to love well and to serve well as we all together are the body of Christ. So I want to pray uh, for us and for other churches all throughout America, because the nursery problem also exists in other churches all throughout America, uh, and these other problems do as well, just that God would continue to take these calls really to radical discipleship and that he would make us truly reflect that, that we would truly be different from society because we are pursuing something utterly different. Because when, when society says, how are you going to do this, and how are you going to save up, and how are you going to have enough money, and how are you going to have enough cars, and how are you going to have enough kids, and enough dogs, and we're like, I don't care, I'm a disciple following Jesus, I'll figure out the rest. That that would truly be the answer and the cry of our souls. Jesus everything. The rest can, can figure it out after that. So let's pray together. God, it's, uh, it's a hard word often uh, to consider the call of Jesus to take up your cross and follow. It's a, 
hard word to talk through together and consider the ramifications in each of our lives. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be at work even right now to uh, encourage those who are giving their all, to give them the strength that they already need, to build up those who are, are feeling weary from giving too much at times and, and bring them back to a place of, of strength and rest in you. I pray that you would be at work to convict those who need conviction to dive in more. We pray that you would help us all together as a body, as a unit, to be on mission together, side by side, as Philippians talks about, that we would be gathering around side by side for the sake of the gospel, pushing forward for your glory, pushing forward for salvation for those around us in our community, that we would be loving people in your name constantly and incessantly. We pray for so many more churches around us, just countless hundreds of churches, even just in the Greenville area, whether that's pretty much next door to the carpenter's house or over to Siloam or uh, these others that are just down the street or whether that's across, the, across town in, in Greenville or Taylor's or Spartanburg or wherever. God, you have so many of your people in this area. You have so many of your people spread throughout the country, spread throughout the world. And we pray that you would not let us be content with a post-COVID comfortable existence. We pray that you would not let us be content with a Jesus saved me, now I can move on with my American dream sort of existence. That we would not call you to follow us, but instead that we would follow you. Yes. Pray that you would help us and, and so many other churches with regard to things like children's ministry or other areas of serving, that, that we would love the call to plug in and serve. That we would see an opportunity as, as an opportunity not just a need or a drudgery, but there's a chance I can plug in, I can serve my King Jesus. That we would see the impact that we can have for the next generation, for the current generation, that you can have through us, and that we would rely on your strength when we feel like we don't have enough, or when we feel weary, that like Paul says, we would boast in our weakness because when we are weak, you are strong. Help us to serve you well from hearts that are full of gratitude for all that you've done, with lives that are oriented toward you. Help us, as we consider our lives, to consider very intentionally where we might need to reprioritize our lives. It's a question that comes to all of us often. That when we feel like we're busy, we would ask why and make sure that, that it's reasons that honor you. And that at times that would produce the change that we need. And at other times it would, it would produce a recognition of all that you're currently doing through us and a gratitude and a calling out for strength for the mission you've given us. Thank you for the salvation you brought. Thank you for the, the calling on mission and the empowerment to do it. We pray that by your grace and by your gospel, we would be those people who love the world around us and who make a difference in the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be reading out of Zechariah, chapter 1, 1 through 6. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of 
Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they not live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your feathers, fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts has purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you. I was going to get you some Kleenexes, but there are none over there. All right, let's pray, and then we'll look at Zechariah. Lord, I pray according to Zechariah 12, 5, I believe, that you would do what you are already doing at the reading of your word. As Anna read, Lord, that you are pouring out a spirit of grace and a spirit for pleas of mercy. You're pouring out a spirit of repentance upon your people. Lord, a, a spirit of repentance that says, I'm sorry, Lord, how my sin has pierced you on the cross. Lord, I'm sorry for making life about myself. I'm sorry for missing the beauty of your grace and how it's come to reconcile us to you, Lord, and then send us out on sacrificial mission. And so we pray that you would continue to do the work that you're already starting, that we would not turn a deaf ear to you anymore and say, hey, that message is for somebody else, but we would receive your word. God, we would say this word is from you. This word of repentance is for us. And Lord, we look to you as our only hope this morning. God, your mercies are new every morning. Lord, your promise is true. In James 4, 8, you said if we draw near to you, Lord, you will draw near to us. And Zechariah 1 says that if we return to you, you will return to us. Lord, that is an extravagant, amount of mercy. So Lord, would you do your good work? Lord, I know that you have uh, gifted us with and entrusted us with so many souls in this congregation. Uh, Lord, over the years and Lord, even over the past couple of years, and we pray, Lord, that you would allow Eric and I, Lord, to be men of, of character, men who faithfully teach the word, men who are filled by your spirit, men who shepherd well, and men who lead in repentance and what repentance looks like. 
And I pray, Lord, we would say with great humility, follow us as we follow Jesus. Lord, lay down your life too as we lay down our lives together. And I pray that you'd begin to do a great work in connection, something that you have uh, maybe never done before in the exact way I'm asking. But Lord, I pray that you would lead us to repentance. Lord, you said in your word that uh, your grace leads us to repentance. And so I pray that you would do that today and you would birth in us, Lord, a sincere, humble repentance and reliance on you. And God, you'd bear the fruit for a lifetime. And God, that you'd use us as a church more now than ever before in our history and existence and that you would get all the glory for it. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thanks again, Anna, for reading Zechariah to us, the opening section. And uh, Justin's right, as we think about this text in our series uh, in Zechariah, we're talking about this issue of repentance. And uh, as I began to think about repentance, I thought about pre-conversion. Back in, my, back in my earlier years, I got saved when I was 17. And months before I became a Christian, I thought this was very interesting how my brain was thinking through things and, and what I was involved with. So months before I became a Christian, I was attending church three times a week. Can you believe that? I was reading my Bible and praying occasionally. That's before I became a Christian. I was singing in a youth choir, imagine that, and having long talks about God with very godly people in our church. That was all prior to becoming a Christian. But in the midst of all that, I was enslaved to my sin. I was enslaved to self-focus. I was enslaved to my agenda. And I was unwilling to surrender to the call of Christ in my life. I was blinded to what Jesus has done for me and the amazing grace available to me in Christ Jesus. I was with the people of God nonstop, doing the work of God nonstop, but I did not know God. And at that point in my life, up until that point, I knew nothing of true biblical repentance. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow. I don't know if you've ever thought through that in your own life. I thought about it again as in our reading plan, we read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and getting started on that this week. But even after conversion, many, many years later, um, I'm now 40. I've been following Jesus for, for 20 plus years. It's interesting that in that process, many times I don't really understand and think through what true biblical repentance is all about. I don't know about you, but many times I think that repentance primarily means returning to my checklist of do's and don'ts. What about you, maybe? And actually, I think what God's going to press us to this morning through his word, that it's about so much more. It's about returning to your first love in Jesus. It's about going back to the time and understanding that even with all your rebellion against our creator and against our savior, that he holds his arms open daily, moment by moment, to all who repent of their self-centered way of living and run back to the Father. And this is the good news of biblical repentance. See, at the opening of the book of Zechariah, we find ourselves in a very similar place that they were, actually. You know, it's very easy 
to point our fingers at other people and say, hey, they need to get their acts together. They're not doing it right. But I think you could probably find yourself in the story here in Zechariah as well. There's a timestamp in the beginning in verse one that reminds us that Israel's back from Babylon after being gone in exile for how many years? 70 years. It's October-ish, I'm talking about the month, 520 BC, and Darius, the head of the Persian empire, is now ruling Jerusalem, and the people are back in the land. And the reason Israel has been in exile for the last 70 years is because, the text says in verse 1 and 2, that he was very angry with them. The implication is angry because of their sin. As one author put it, he's kind of summarizing the, old, old, the whole Old Testament, and he says, the exile was the result of years of Israel's idolatry, syncretism, hypocritical worship, moral failure, exploitation of the poor, unapproved alliances with other nations, and corrupt leadership. That was the result of the exile, years of that. And just out the gate, I just want to tell you how amazing it is that God didn't completely wipe them off the, the face of the world the first time they disobeyed the Lord. And that's a grace for us as well because our God is slow to anger. Aren't you grateful for that? And now in God's mercy, he brings a new generation back to Jerusalem in 520 uh, when Zechariah begins to prophesy. And he's given them this mission to rebuild the temple. And as we think about their mission, I want to think about our mission connected to what Justin said. We may not have been given the mission to rebuild a, a physical temple, but what God has done is he has rebuilt our hearts through repentance and salvation, right? And now he's calling us, like Justin said, to live selflessly for his kingdom, right? And 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2 says what he's doing in his church right now is he is piecing us together like living stones in a new building. That's the church of the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's using that people to accomplish his mission of taking to the gospel to every nation and to teach people to follow Jesus without reserve. That's our mission today as always. But here's the thing, Israel doesn't seem much different than their fathers at that point, or their ancestors at that point, who God led away to exile. The inward and outward pressure led them to abandon the work of building that new or second temple for an entire 17 years. And here's my thing, maybe we're there. Maybe we're them. Maybe we've had a calling that is very challenging that we actually can't do on our own. And God's saying, maybe you've gotten discouraged. Maybe you've gotten distracted. Maybe you've gotten disobedient. Maybe you've gotten distant. And like the people of Zechariah, I'm calling you back to repentance. The new generation has the same calling that we have. So in a very crucial moment, God doesn't do something, like I said, that, that is off or maybe that we wouldn't expect we would expect, but it's very, very merciful. He doesn't immediately send them off to exile again for botching it for the last 17 years. He offers them a second chance on repentance. Isn't that cool? I mean, just don't forget the context. That's our God. 
I mean, think about Jonah. Think about David, King David. And think about Zachariah's audience this day. 17 years of being distracted, 17 years of doing what they wanted for themselves, 17 years of walking down the street and seeing the building lay in ruins that God's called you to rebuild and work on, right? And in that moment, God gives them a second chance. And I'm telling you, in this moment, in every moment that you hear the Spirit of God calling through his word to you, it's an opportunity at another second chance. So God speaks to this new generation through a new prophet, Zechariah, son of Berkiah, son of Edo, he basically tells them they're at a fork in the road. And he shoots them straight about the high stakes of failing to receive God's word or to close your ears and say, that's for somebody else. And that's, this is my question. Aren't you thankful for God's word? It says it like this, that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah and then he takes it and he speaks it to the people so it could come to them. And aren't you grateful in the midst of our darkness that God's word shines forward like a light on our hearts this morning? In the midst of the raging storm of society and our nation and our family trauma and difficulty, God's word comes like a beacon, like a lighthouse, drawing us back to the only one who can save us. And for Zachariah's audience, he's getting that same, he's giving them that same opportunity what God does is he makes disobedient, distracted, and discouraged people. He offers them a gracious invitation. And that's what he's doing for us this morning as a church. It's a gracious invitation beyond their wildest imagination. But here's the catch. To reject this gracious invitation would lead to tragic consequences. And if you look at this section called to repentance and you take it all seriously, you're like, whoa, there is a serious call for repentance that's couched in amazing grace, the grace of God's reception to us. But for those who harden their heart and callous their ears and say, God, that message is not for me, there's a serious warning that God's laying out through this text. First point, the call to repentance, verse three. In the first six verses of Zechariah, God uses the Hebrew word sub. Okay, everybody say sub. Sub, right? That was my submarine, okay? He uses that word four times. The word can be translated in the English as return, turn, or repent, depending on the context. The same Hebrew word is one of the two words the New Testament authors uses to explain the concept of repentance. And as Justin just define repentance at the beginning. He did a great job. You can't much improve on the Westminster Confession, but I'm gonna to try to make it more simplified and streamlined. Understanding biblical repentance is this. It's a sorrow and a hatred for your sins that sincerely leads us into surrender to the Savior. It's a sorrow and a hatred for our sins that sincerely leads us in surrender to the Savior. You actually, do you see the bright spot at the end of that, right? There's a lot of religious definitions of repentance. There's even one within Catholicism that I bump into a lot as I talk to people. And it's not evangelical repentance because at the heart of evangelical repentance, there is a savior. <laughs> there is a savior who is receiving you, right? And here God through Zechariah tells the new generation, 
this. He says, look at it, verse three, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. A couple of things I want us to see about this call in verse three. First, God is the initiator of repentance. Like Justin said, we didn't wake up one day on our journey with this and say, hmm, I think today would be a good day to repent of my sin. Man, I, I actually feel really sorry about my sin today. No, God's the initiator. Repentance was his idea for a people whose lives are filled with compromise and inactivity towards his mission. He says, I love them and I want to pursue them and I want their hearts to be broken before me for their sin. Like Acts eleven eighteen and 2 Timothy two twenty five reminds us repentance is a gift from God. And I love this quote. One of the early church fathers, John Christostom said this, listen, you don't desire to be forgiven as much as God desires to forgive you. Isn't that good this morning? That's the audience in Zechariah's only hope. They didn't desire to be forgiven more than God desired to forgive them, right? And that's our hope too this morning. Second, just out in the beginning, we see this. God makes the next generation a gracious promise. He says, return to me and what? I'll return to you. This is a massively hopeful statement because it's made kind of in one way without qualifications. What do I mean about, about that? He didn't say, return to me and I'll return to you as long as you've not done this particular sin because if you did this particular sin, I am not returning to you, right? And he doesn't say, return to me and I'll return to you as long as you have not done too much sinning. Because if you've done too much sinning, there's no way I'm returning to you. And that's really good news for Israel at this time. And that's really good news for us as well. And he doesn't say, return to me and I'll return to you as long as you haven't been gone for too long. Because if you've been compromising for too long and you've been passive for too long and you've been cavalier about the Christian life for too long, I'm not coming back to you. No. This is why I think Ephesians 2 is so powerful. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work at the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And that's really hopeless. And God doesn't list out that description of all of us pre-salvation and say, that's too much to forgive. He says in verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Third, in verse three, you may miss, miss this if you read the text really quickly, but it's interesting. The call to repentance is couched between the repetition of God's name. Look at verse three, if you're looking at it. It says, return to me. What's the next phrase? says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. What's the next phrase? Says the Lord of hosts. Man, God's repeating himself a lot right here. That's interesting. Why the repetition? Couldn't he just said it once and then said, says the Lord of hosts? Well, what's on both sides of the promise to the repentant? What's on both sides? The reminder of the one who made the promise to you. Why is that significant? Because the Lord of hosts, the first word in that Lord is literally Yahweh, God's covenant name to his people. 
Host, the second part of that phrase, is the word meaning armies and most likely references angelic armies. So the idea out the gate for Zechariah's audience is this, the self-existent, eternal, redeeming, covenant-keeping God who has angelic armies at his disposal will carry out his gracious promise to those who repent. He won't be stopped. You can bank on that. He is a promise keeper. That's why I think it's so cool to think about Zachariah's name. Do you know what the name Zachariah means? Anybody know? Call it out here if you know. What does Zachariah's name, the prophet who's speaking to Israel's name, actually mean? Anybody know? What? Yahweh Yahweh or God remembers. You say, well, how is that comforting? Or what in the world does that even mean? Well, in the context... Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers all of his promises to his people. It means he's faithful. So if God says, I'm going to keep my promise to you every time that you come to me and you say, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry for the things I've made it, made life. I'm sorry for being so selfish and self-absorbed. I hate my sin and I'm turning to you sincerely. Like I'm trusting you. I'm banking on your word. I'm banking that you will receive me when I botched it and I've broken it. And I'm coming to you because you're my only savior, Lord. My family's not my savior. My church is not my savior. My life and efforts are not my savior, but you are. He says, every time I'm faithful to receive you. This is the beauty of Christian repentance. Second, clarifying repentance, verse three through four. There's an old story about an elderly man and woman who drove down the road in their truck, and that truck had a long bench seat in the front. You guys know what I'm talking about? Wasn't two individual seats. It was a long bench seat, like a pew from a church sitting in a truck, okay? So that elderly couple driving down the road, and as they drove, the wife noticed that in many of the other trucks with the other couples that were passing by, when she looked in the front seat, all the other women sat really, really, really close to their husband. And she was really upset about that. So she turned to her husband and she said, hey, why is it that we don't sit that close anymore? And he simply turned to her and said, it wasn't me who moved. It wasn't me who moved. So first I want you to see that repentance from verse three is primarily a relational act towards God. And this is very important. Repentance is primarily a relational act towards God. It's vertical. It's relational. God says, listen, return to me, says the Lord of hosts. And I will what? Return to you, says the Lord of hosts. See, God doesn't first and foremost say, return to religion. He doesn't first and foremost say, return to the work of building the temple, or return to the rituals, or, hey, hey guys, can we just return to the rule keeping? If we could just return to the rule keeping, everything would be better, right? He says this, he says, return to me. This is crucial. He calls them to return to me. He could have said it like this, return to loving me. All your sins and your compromises and you're closing your ears to not listen to my word and your rejection of living for me, it's all because you've rejected to love me supremely, to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if you would just return to loving me, everything else would line up. This is true. He says, return to me, which literally means, like Justin said, 
to reverse your direction, to do a 180 and turn around and run back to God. See, we must realize that the worst part of our sin is that we've walked away from God, the fountain of living water. And we may have walked away from God and ran towards religion or ran towards rule keeping, but we weren't returning to God. This is a hard truth to swallow. Maybe we've trusted other saviors and we've looked to other lords in his place. See, like Luke 15, I think Zechariah at the beginning is pointing out that there are two types of runaways. Everybody say two types of runaways. There are the younger brother prodigals that despise the father by distancing themselves in a foreign land and spending their inheritance on worldly pleasures. And then there are the self-righteous, never left the house or maybe left the church, older prodigal brothers who equally despise the father, who equally distrust the father, who equally don't treasure the father, who equally are distant from the father. And I think this verse in verse three is reminding us that there are two types of runaways and we need to be asking ourselves, which one are we? But here's the good news. In spite of our sins taking us far away from God in many different ways, and taking us away from God in our hearts in many different ways, and bringing separation in our lives from God in many different ways, Jesus would come and he would pay our debt to bring us back to God. See, that chasm was so great that we couldn't cross it on our own. And God came down himself and gave his life and died for us. First Peter 3:18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us home, <laughs> that he might bring us to God. You remember that story in Luke 15? Like you got the two prodigals, you got the one who's distant in his heart. <laughs> And you got the one who's distant geographically in his rebellion. And God is waiting on the front porch, as it were, the father in Luke 15, that, that parable. And he's just longing and looking for that son to return. He looks for the younger brother prodigal that way. And he also does the same for the older brother prodigal. You find him in that text walking out and looking for the brother. He's like, man, I can't get a calf sacrificed for me. What is my dad doing? And he pursues him out in the field as well. And in both those things, we see the father's heart. We see the father's heart to run and kiss the repentant and receive the repentant, give a signet ring, the fatted calf for the repentant. See, Christ makes a promise to us as well. He says, all that the father gives me will come to me. And he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John 6, 37. So if you're on the fence about repentance this morning, maybe you're not even a Christian yet. Or maybe you're a Christian, you're like, you got something in your life, you're like, I wanna hold on to it. I don't wanna be sorrowful, godly sorrowful for this. I don't wanna hate this sin. If you're on the fence about repentance, I'll tell you this, all who come to Jesus, Jesus will never cast out. Second, in clarifying repentance, I want us to see that even though repentance is more than doing the right thing, it's never less than that. 
What do I mean? Look at Zechariah 1, 4. It says, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from, look at it, 1, 4. Return from what? You tell me. Your evil ways. And from your what? Evil deeds. So repentance is much more than doing the right thing, but it's not less than doing the right thing. What do I mean by that? If we ever find ourselves saying, I've returned to God, I'm good. I don't need to hear this prophetic word coming from the prophets or David's like calling me to repentance maybe in my life. I don't need that. And you say, I'm good. But you do it without walking away from your sins. You haven't actually returned to God. That's what this text is teaching. And this is not an isolated situation. John the Baptist called in Jesus's day to the people and said, repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And in the very next verse, Luke 3, 8, he tells you what that fruit means. It's a changed life. And he talks about if the people are being selfish, repentance looks like being kind and sharing. And if the unrepentant look like being greedy, repentance looks like being generous. That's why Jesus told the church in Revelation to repent and what? Revelation 2, 5. Do the works you did at first. And then in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, the apostle Paul says, repentance includes turning from idol, idols and turning to God. Here's why that happens. Because this is what happens in biblical repentance. When you see the true beauty and glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and you see the grace made available for sinful people like us, and you hear the voice of his love beckoning you and saying, hey, look, I will wash you clean. You just come to me. I'll forgive your sins. I'll come in and I'll rebuild your heart so that you hate your sin and that you love to follow me. When you hear that message and it resounds in your soul, you wanna repent. <laughs> you wanna repent. So maybe what we should start praying right now, if you're a believer, is Lord, bring me back again. Bring me back again. Pour out your spirit of mercy on me and please for mercy in my heart because I've got something right now in my life that's dominating me and I'm not truly godly sorrowful about it and I truly don't hate it and I'm actually holding on to it and I've got idols. I've got other saviors that are not you. And I need you to work so deeply and so powerful. Cause me to repent again and again and again. So what sin is God calling you away from today? Well, if I could be honest with you guys, I've had a huge need for repentance this week. And it's only Sunday, you know what I'm saying? So even last week, I'm being legit with you guys. I'm being very honest with you guys. And I didn't have time to list out everything but I've had to repent of being irritable and rude with my family. So that started with God. And then hopefully in many situations that led to me to go to my family and confess my sins to them, okay? I've been jealous about somebody else's ministry. So another pastor was like just telling me about what's going on in his church and all the cool things that are happening. And then I walked away and I was like, oh, that's great. And then I walked away and I'm like, I'm kind of envious, Okay. Uh, I had to repent of loving sleep so much that I didn't get up and give God the first fruits of my day and get up and get alone and prayed in the word with him. I had to repent of being fearful 
and not trusting God that he had helped me and prepared me for a speaking engagement that I just went to yesterday with Anna. And even on my sermon this morning, I'm laying in bed and I wake up and I'm like about to get in a cold sweat because I'm like, I'm not ready to preach this sermon, God. I had to repent of fear this morning. I had to repent even this week of being overly critical towards my wife and lacking kindness, which started in my heart towards God. I was like, I need to return to God. My main problem is vertical. Even this week, I had to repent for not wanting to serve my family and not wanting to serve my church family. I'm not glorying in my shame. I'm just saying, I was like, man, this week has been so busy. I mean, I've been up super late a lot this week doing church stuff. And then we roll around and I forget it's our day to clean the church building. And I had to repent in my heart because I'm like, God, I, I don't love this. And I should count it in honor. I had to repent of not being slow to speak and quick to listen and slow to become angry in a couple of situations in my week with other people. I had to repent of not being compassionate. Somebody was telling me in their situation and they were in a bad situation physically, like they had some physical health complications. And I walked away and I was just kind of like blew them off. And I was like, in my heart, I was like, man, I need Jesus because I need, I'm lacking comp compassion for them. I had to repent for neglecting to pray for the congregation more often during the week because when you do a pastoral stuff, you're like, it's easier to get things done and check off a list and prepare for a sermon and call that person on the phone and go have that meeting than it is to pray. And God's called me to both. And I had to repent of that. So my question is, what do you have to repent of today? And the only reason I can come to you and, and, and list out something like that is because Christ received me. I turned back and he said, yes, David, come. And I, I can only tell you that because I believe he's going to receive me again when I come in, in five seconds from now or five minutes from now. And I, and I can tell you that and be confident and be contented in my heart because like Peter said, he said, hey, repent in times of refreshing will come from the Lord. So I repent. But there's also a very serious warning at the end of this text. If the positive side and the positive side of the promise is return to me and I'll return to you, then the implication is this. If you don't return to God in repentance, he's not going to return to you. You're like, what does that mean? Do I lose my salvation? I don't think that you'll lose your salvation, but I'm telling you, you're going to lose the intimacy that God desires for you, the joy of walking with the Lord that God wants for you. And he's calling out for you and he's saying, come, come back, come back. This backwards promise to those who don't repent is equally powerful. And Zechariah is holding that warning out to the next generation. Final point, convinced to repent, verse five through six, convinced to repent. Have you ever used somebody as a bad example to your kids? You pointed out some kid who didn't listen to his mom. He's in the grocery store. He's standing up in the car. And his mom says, hey, could you sit down, Billy? And then Billy topples out into the floor, right? And bumps his head. You say, don't be like Billy, okay? Listen to your mom, right? Or more, maybe you've pointed out a relative who was unkind with their words, and they were always, you know, responding in anger and just telling everybody what they thought and giving them a piece of their mind and then they lost their job. And you said, hey, hey, kids, you know, you don't want to follow his example. That might happen to you. Or maybe you're telling your kids, hey, please don't follow my example in that. 
because I didn't do the right thing. See, Zechariah tells the new generation of returned exiles that their fathers did it wrong. He says they didn't pay attention. They're supposed to lead you to God, to Yahweh, to love him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love others as themselves, and they didn't lead you the right way. They didn't show you what it's like to return to me. They didn't show you what it's like. And he says in that moment, don't follow your unfaithful father's example because they ended up in exile. I've got a question. Are we in danger this morning of following someone else's example of how not to repent? You're like, they're religious. They got all the right words. But I'm in danger this morning, maybe of following someone else's example of how not to repent. I got a question this morning. How might we be modeling to other people religion, but not what it looks like to biblically return to Jesus? That's a great question this morning for us. Zechariah makes his point like this. He asked them at the close of Zechariah 1 through 6. He says, where are they? Where are your fathers? Where were they? The answer is they've been in exile under God's judgment. Zechariah says it like this, God's words have overtaken the fathers. That is like a hunter who has caught up to his prey and God's word had overtaken their fathers. The word from all other prophets in Israel's history had caught up to them, right? All the other sermons of repentance coming from all the other prophets down the road to Zechariah. And what God is saying next is, did the prophets live forever? Answer he's going for is note. But you know why the prophets didn't live forever? Because the fathers killed them. Religious people hearing the call to repentance said, I don't want none of that. And I don't care nothing about returning to God. And they killed him. Even though they were God's faithful servants speaking his word. And God is making this powerful point to people to drive home how serious he is about the call to return. Your fathers may have silenced the prophets before you and before me by putting them to death, but they never silenced me. That's powerful. And he's saying, I will fulfill every promise. I'll fulfill my promise to receive the repentant who truly turned to me. And I'll also fulfill the promise to judge those who reject me in unrepentance. Because why? Unlike your fathers, unlike the prophets of old, I'll never die. So I'm always around to ensure that I will always carry out my word, my statutes, my commands. That's what he's saying. And in verse six, he wraps it all up and says to the new generation, basically, are you going to take my words seriously? Are you going to pay attention closely to my words and my promises like your fathers before you did not? And that's where I'm going to leave us this morning. John 10, 27 through 28 says this amazing thing about the new birth. When you're born again, Jesus says, my sheep hear my words and they what? They follow me. They say, yes, Jesus, I hear you speaking this morning. 
Yes, Jesus, I believe you're gracious to receive me with open arms. Yes, Jesus, I'm coming back home again. And I just, I just left like 30 seconds ago and I gotta come back home again because all I really need is you, Jesus. And Jesus says, when you do, I'm here. And I'm gonna completely transform your understanding and your thinking. And I'm gonna send you back out to build my kingdom again. That's the hope of this. And at the end, in verse six, Zechariah makes an announcement and he says, as the Lord purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. And it says, they repented. And the question is, who repented? I'm just curious, like who repented? Somebody repented, that's really good. Let's celebrate that, but who repented? And the they there, even in the original language, makes it hard to understand who actually repented. Was it Zechariah's fathers who were in view? Was it them, those who had been away at exile, or was it Zechariah's generation hearing the preaching and the promise of repentance? And I'm not quite sh- sure. I kind of lean towards Zechariah's fathers at the end of the exile. And here's, if it was them, here's the confession that they say at the end of all of it. They say, we turned from God. We did what we wanted. We lived a self-absorbed life. And God, you were right in your dealing with us. The way you dealt with us was completely just. It was completely right. It was completely patient. It was more than we deserved. You were beckoning us to come and we didn't, but now we're coming home. And if it's Zachariah's audience, it's saying the same thing. God, you're just and you're right in all the ways that you deal with people. And you're so merciful to even hold out the gift of grace once again for, to, for wandering sinners and to receive us like you do. And we're coming home. So I'm calling us this morning to come home again and again to come home. I love what one pastor says. He says, like a surgeon's knife that causes pain and exposure in order to heal, repentance opens up again to us the fresh application of God's grace to our hearts. And as painful as it is to lay our sins before God by confession and repentance, God uses it to draw our eyes back to our deep and abiding and daily need of Jesus. Martin Luther, the great reformer of the Protestant Reformation, he said it like this. He said, it's interesting that when we go to repent, that we're thinking in that moment, um, that maybe I've repented enough. And he says this, what we should go for is a lifestyle of repentance. Not a one and done, we got saved, but what we should go for is a lifestyle of repentance that continues until our death. And he says this, and I'm gonna close with it. As long as there is sin and turning from God, there is a need for repentance and turning back to God. You guys like that? That for us this morning? And this is how he ends it, so good, gold nugget. He went on to say, as long as Christ has died for our sins and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, as long as Christ is ever leading to make intercession for his people, there is hope and repentance to be received by Christ once again. This is our hope, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word to us. Thank you for the grace that we've received at salvation. Lord, thank you for the work of repentance you've done in our heart. It's a gift. Lord, would you do it again? 
Would you draw us back to finding our first love in you, Jesus? And Lord, once you do that, Lord, we truly believe that our lives would line up. We'd stop living for ourselves because we're so thankful for what you've done to redeem us. And we see once again clearly that it's not about us, Lord. It's always been about you. Do that work for us and all around the globe today, we pray in Christ's name, amen. You guys wanna stand and sing with us? I'm just gonna pick for a few minutes and give us a moment to reflect on what we've learned today. Maybe God is bringing something to your heart right now. Maybe he's been working in your heart even before you came today. Maybe you haven't treasured him like you've treasured something else. Maybe you've been the prodigal son wandering. Or maybe you're the older son. Maybe you've allowed religion to rob you of a relationship. just respond to his spirit this morning. He only wants what's best for you. What's best for you is to be in his arms. There's nothing that you can do that would make him love you any less. There's nothing that you can do that would disqualify you from the free gift of grace. God, would you tear us down? Would you tear down our walls, tear down our kingdom and build us back up on your strong foundation? Would you set Jesus as the cornerstone of our hearts, of this church? We surrender all to you, Jesus. My hope is built on nothing less 
boldness to stand before the throne. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, He is Lord, Lord alone. See, Lord, today. Praise God that we serve such a gracious king. We have such a, an amazing father who forgives us time and time again, who would use even our exile as a means of making us his. Praise God that he will never stop pursuing us. We serve such a great and mighty God, greater than we can comprehend. His mercy is greater than all of our sin. His love is deeper than our hearts can fathom. And he is worthy of all of our praise. For our last song, I just want us to praise God together for what an amazing God he is. How great is our God. His greatness leads us to follow after him as Lord, to turn away from our own kingdom, to turn away from our sin, and to pursue him because he pursues us. Let's sing this together. The splendor of our King Clothed in majesty, let all the earth rejoice, all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light, and darkness tries to hide, trembles at his voice, trembles at his voice. How great is our God, sing with me, how great is our God, and oh, we'll sing how great, how great is our God. Would you lift your hands and sing that again? How great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God. Oh, sing how great, how great is our God. And age to age he stands, 
time is in his hands Beginning and the end Beginning and the end The Godhead three in one Father, Spirit, Son The Lion and the Lamb The Lion and the Lamb How great is our God Sing with me How great is our God You know we'll see How great, how great is our God He's the name above all names Name above all names So worthy distance that you've traveled to pursue us from heights far beyond our imagination to the depths of our despair and our depravity we are so unworthy of your grace your free gift so unworthy of your mercy God, your justice could not be satisfied without your wrath against sin. And you chose to take it upon yourself. Your son lived the life that we could not live. And he died the death that we deserve. And you accounted his righteousness and his punishment to us but you didn't stop there death could not hold him down hell could not contain the love that burst through 
you rolled the stone away and you came back to life on the third day and you ascended into heaven and you're seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning. You've sent your Holy Spirit to live in our hearts and to lead us daily in repentance of sin, to call us back time and time again to a right relationship with you. God, you do all the work, and we get all of the praise, all all of the the benefit, Lord, and we lift up our praise to you because you are worthy. God, would you revive us again and send us out this week with a renewed hope, a renewed faith, a renewed fervency for the great work that you're doing. Would you rebuild our hearts and build your kingdom here? We ask it in the name that is above all names. Amen. Thank you, Justin. I'm going to end uh, slightly different than I was anticipating. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 24, 47, after he had died for your sins and mine and resurrected from the grave, he said this, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name to all nations. Isn't that cool? Paid for your sins. He raised again from the dead, defeating your death. And he says, hey, one thing as you go. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations, to all people. Connection Fellowship, your love, your ascent. Take the good news. God bless you.